Thank you. Uh, I'm assuming you are singing there, those of you who are at home. And let me just encourage you, uh, sometimes you might be a little nervous about singing out around other people. Sing out with gusto. Um, and family members, be gracious about that. So let's, uh, let's open God's word. We're in Micah ch- uh, today, Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Mike is one of those minor prophets, and we always like to say, not because the message they have is minor, but because they're shorter books. They're in those last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so if you were to page through, if you, know, if you can get to Isaiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, right after that you start coming across Hosea and uh, Amos and, and names like that. And if you can get your way, keep going, you'll come to Micah. If you're with, in my Bible, you're on page 1894. If you see uh, Haggai, Zechariah, you've gone too far. Go back a little bit. I'm looking at this passage because this is the passage. This is the passage. Remember the scene when the wise men show up and say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And Herod instantly knows what's what's happening. They're talking about the Messiah. These Royal counselors, these wise men of wisdom and special knowledge have come from the east. And they say, the king of the Jews has been born, must be the Messiah. So he goes to his religious advisors, his biblical scholars, and says, where's Messiah to be born? And they go straight to this text, Micah 5, 2. And so what's exciting to me is this text, 700 years before Christ was born, pinpointed where he would be born. And he's pinpointed with specificity so there can be no question. The true Messiah will come from from Bethlehem. Frankly, it's part of the Christmas message and that's what's drawn me. But also I've been drawn here because we've just finished the book of Ruth. And where does that happen? In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. And so that's where I'm encouraged by, to, to come back to Bethlehem because there was that beautiful scene of, of God's grace uh, among, the, among the faithful, among the remnant in a very dark time. That's something of, the, of, of Micah during the dark time in, in Israel. And that points to the specialness of this, of this town, of this village, of little Bethlehem. Well, if we're going to study the text, uh, let's get some background first. Historically, first of all, Micah is really another way of saying, who is like Yah? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Jehovah? And so that suggests to me, if you're going to name your son, who is like the Lord? Uh, Back then, they understood those names, and, and that tells me he probably came from a family that honored the Lord. He prophesied, we're told, um, during the reigns of Jotham, uh, Ahaz and Hezekiah, Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now I'm going to page back. If you're looking at that Micah 5 or Micah 1, 1 is where I just read. I'm going to go back, back to Isaiah where he, his first verse and notice, so, so Micah says he prophesied during the, ministry, the, the kingdoms of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now listen to Isaiah. 
the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Did you notice the similarity? Isaiah has just one other king, Uzziah. And um, so what that tells us is Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. The fact that Isaiah ministered during the earlier king, Uzziah, that came before the ones where Micah ministered, suggests Isaiah was the older of the two. But they were at the same time, and, and actually I won't get into it, I don't think too much today, but you can actually see some cross-referencing where maybe there, sometimes there's a question, who was quoting whom between Isaiah and Micah? So they knew of each other. They're both in the general region of Judah and, and during the same general time frame, especially Micah's time frame being shorter, uh, overlaps with Isaiah. And, and perhaps uh, maybe Micah went longer into Hezekiah's reign than Isaiah. Micah came from a town called Morasheth, which is southwest of Jerusalem, 20 to 30 miles southwest, heading towards Philistia. And he ministered in Judah in the southern kingdom. Now, chronologically or historically, so let me just tell you, Jotham was from 750 to 731 BC. These are the three kings during whose reigns he ministered. Jotham, 750 to 731. Ahaz, 731 to 715. Hezekiah, 715 to 686. So all that to say, the, the late 8th century or the 700s is really when they were ministering. Now, and part of that is very important. In the year 721 B.C., and so that would be during the reign of Ahaz, Assyria conquered and took Israel, the northern tribes, into captivity. And so you remember the tribe, the Israel, the nation of Israel divided after the time of Solomon, north and south, and the uh, or north and south, and the south had some godly kings. The north never did. The north instantly went off into idolatry, and so the north was eventually warned and warned and warned by prophets like. Uh, uh, Elijah and others but did not repent and so they were taken they were conquered by the Assyrians and taken into captivity that was in 721 BC so that was during the time frame of Micah and, and the Assyrians continued to be uh, a, a threatening world power during the time of Micah so again that's sort of the context it was a hard time because actually the Assyrians, when they, they actually come and, and threaten Jerusalem and, and come into Judah. I'll mention that in a little bit. So that's the context. Just so around the time of the Assyrian conquest, during the reigns of uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, remember, was a godly, godly king. Let's think about the context in the book. The book is built around three major messages. Uh, each one uh, starts with the word here. So I'm going to just give it to you for your notes. We're not going to read all these. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 2.13 is the first message. And it begins, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth. 
chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, 15. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. And chapter 6, 1, verses 6 to seven twenty. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case. So three messages are the outline of the book. 1, 2 to 2, 13, 3, 1 to 5, 15, 6, 1 to 7, 20. Now, the outline of each of those is very similar. They start with, with warning of judgment and promise of blessing. And I've right there given you about the, the outline of most of the prophets of the Old Testament. They often start with warning of judgment, because, and they call out the sin of Israel and say the judgment's coming. And then there's promise of blessing. Think of the prophet Isaiah, um, the, the colleague, the contemporary of Micah. Chapters 1 to 39, judgment. Points out their sin, announces judgment. Oh, there's messages of hope in there too, but mostly judgment. Chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah, promised blessing. That's where we see all the promises of the coming Messiah. Chapter 53, you know, the, the suffering servant. Warning of judgment, promise of blessing. Isn't that amazing? Because after warning, calling them out for sin, pointing out their rebellion, telling them judgment is coming, it's followed by a message of promised blessing. It's like telling a child, you know, you've really chewed them out. They've, they've really misbehaved, um, took the keys, drove the car, wrecked it, walked home. And he's only three years old. <laughs> so you, 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 you put him in time out and you really just let him know how disappointed you are. And then you say, by the way, uh, we're going to, to Brahms for banana splits this evening. You know, usually it's, well, you wouldn't even talk about things like that. Well, here's the point. In the midst of announcing judgment, sin, rebellion, and God's, they broke the covenant, and part of the covenant was when there's sin, there's judgment. Then God promises blessing because his relationship with his people is driven by grace. Yes, you violated the covenant. With the covenant comes judgment. But God made promises to Abraham. That he would bless him, give him a land, give him a nation. He, his, he would be blessed, his nation would be blessed, and the nations blessed through him. God will keep that promise in spite of man's sin. And so promised judgment does not negate the promised kindness of God. And so that's the theme you see throughout the prophets, and that's what you see in Micah. Tremendous grace is promised. Um, now, in our context, I'll, I'll just mention again. I'm, I'm just giving these things because you may want to read the book of Micah a little bit later on. It's frankly, the prophets, again, are challenging because they're constantly back and forth. Judgment, blessing, what's the time frame? But there's um, three smaller sections in our passage, verses 9 to 10 of chapter 4. Verses 11 to 13, and chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and they all begin with the phrase, now. Now, why do you cry aloud? Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Verses, chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Now, also many nations have gathered against you. 
And then chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Now, gather yourselves in troops. Now, the passage before us, chapter 5, verse 2. It begins in verse 1. Now, gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Trouble is coming. Call out the guard. Empty the barracks. Get ready. Prepare to defend yourselves. But the king, it says, they will strike the judge of Israel. And the word judge, you know, it's the word like in the book of Judges, but it means leader as well as someone who makes decisions. They're going to smite him, smite him with a rod on the cheek. That's probably referring to what happened during when Babylon conquered. Because you'll remember, the northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria. The southern tribes survived the Assyrian invasions, but they were conquered later by the Babylonians and taken into captivity by them. So when the Babylonians came, we see this in, in chapter Second uh, Kings chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. They took the king, brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. So that's probably what's referring to where they strike him with a rod on the cheek. He was abused and he was mocked by the Babylonians. So chapter 5, verse 1 begins with warning. Call out the troops. Trouble is coming. And the king will be struck on the cheek. It's interesting, it doesn't say he'll be killed. King Zedekiah wasn't killed. He was taken, he was shamed horribly and taken off into captivity in Babylon. So Micah is predicting a coming conquest. So that's judgment. So we get the, con- so we get the, the theme, we get the big picture, about the same time as I overlap with Isaiah, the northern tribes, after warning and warning, eventually, and, 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 and warfare, the Assyrians conquer them, and they're scattered in captivity. Uh, during this time, uh, the Babylonians will be coming. And it's interesting, it was later on. Uh, Micah talks about Babylon and the Babylonians, even though they were not a great power at the time. They were, they'd been conquered by Assyria. The great enemy of their time was Assyria. But he warns of coming judgment. Gather the troops. The king will be shamed. And then we come to verse 2 of chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. The enemy's coming. He's going to conquer. He's going to shame the king. Back in the days of, well, in our day, when there's a great tragedy, uh, whether it be maybe a a huge hurricane comes in, uh, or when there's some of the rioting that's been happening in the streets, or certainly if there's a foreign invasion, what people might be saying is, what is Washington going to do? 
You know, what's, you know that's, that's where we look. That's, that's the, our government. That is our you know, base of strength. But he doesn't say their hope is in what Jerusalem is going to do. It, it would be something like a prophet writing in our times saying the enemy is coming. The king will be uh, shamed and obviously defeated. But look to Terrell, Texas. And we would all smile and say, Terrell, Texas, I don't think so. Well, that's what they thought about Bethlehem. Jerusalem, the capital, is, God says, that's not your hope. Now, it's interesting, when the, when, when, when the enemy was coming, Hezekiah was a very aware of the coming of the Assyrians uh, under Sennacherib, King, King Sennacherib. If you go to Israel and you are not afraid of tight quarters, you can actually walk through the, the Hezekiah Tunnel, they call it. One of the problems in ancient warfare was the, the way they would often conquer. You know, they didn't have aircraft and this sort of thing. They would build siege ramps, but, but often they would just surround a city, and it might literally be under siege for years. And during that time, they wanted to starve you out. And so if you knew that was coming, you did a couple of things. You made sure your walls were strong enough to withstand attack, and you made sure you had food and water supplies. Jerusalem, well, you know, there's the two rainy seasons. But there was a spring outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. What are you going to do? They're, going to, they're not going to let us go there. So knowing the Assyrians were coming, Hezekiah commissioned the, the, the digging of a tunnel uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, from inside the city to the spring outside the city. It's remarkable because it's, it was a feat of engineering that they still can't quite figure out. Digging through solid rock underground, the, the teams started uh, to make, because you know, it was small, if you, if you start from each end, then you could move twice as fast. The problem is, how do you know you're actually going to meet? Amazingly, you can see where they corrected just a little bit, a few inches, when they met. So somehow they did it under the city and they meet right there underneath the city. And so there's, there's a tunnel. And like I said, you can walk through it today. Your feet, you'll, you'll, you'll walk in water. It's dark. It's tight. But th that was one of his preparations. Let's make sure we have water. Hezekiah's tunnel. They've also uncovered walls that were uh, strengthened and, and, and ready for the attack. Hezekiah did all he could to prepare. He built his tunnel. He built his famous walls. And the Assyrians didn't win. But you remember what happened, don't you? I love this story. The Assyrians came and uh, said, you need to surrender. And, and remember the messengers of the king called out, don't listen to Hezekiah. He says your God's going to protect you. There isn't a God that has been able to save, that, save a people yet. We have conquered all these peoples of all these gods. Your God can't help you. We are going to conquer you. And they even sent in a letter saying, we are going to conquer Israel. We're going to conquer your king. And Hezekiah takes it to the temple and lays it before the Lord and says, Lord, I love this. You've got mail. The, the Assyrians say, you can't take them. What are you going to do about it? That's kind of a loose paraphrase. What happens? 
with all the Assyrian army that has just devastated so much of the ancient world, God sends one out there to conquer them, one angel. And in one night, 185,000 Assyrians are slain in the field. Jerusalem doesn't fall, but it wasn't because of the water tunnel. And it wasn't because of the strengthened walls. It was because God delivered Jerusalem. The hope for Israel wasn't Jerusalem. The hope for Israel wasn't the palace in Jerusalem. The hope for Israel is a stable in Bethlehem. Little town of Bethlehem. How, sil- how sweet still we see thee lie. I think, wasn't it Phillips Brooks that wrote that song? I remember he had a, a long and busy ministry and, and his church wanted him to see the Holy Land. And so they sent him off and he came back and he was struck at how, even then, it, Bethlehem was still just a small little village. And, and he just said, you know, he wandered through the, through the little town of Bethlehem and he had to come back and say, it's, it's nothing spectacular. You know, you go to some parts of the world and look at the incredible ruins. What an amazing stadium. What an amazing theater. Look at this library they built. Look at the, not Bethlehem. Oh, little simple village town of Bethlehem. What's interesting is I had to do some thinking. In the days of Micah, what would people think of Bethlehem? Jerusalem, by the grace of God, had been protected, protected by the Assyri- from the Assyrians. I'm not sure Bethlehem was. We have records of Sennacherib's, what they call, we call the Annals of Sennacherib, where he records what he accomplished. So I'm going to read. This isn't Bible, okay? This is, this is Sennacherib's history. Here's what he said. As for Hezekiah the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by leveling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot my mines, tunnels, and breaches, I besieged and took them. So he's saying um, he, he went against the king, Hezekiah. He conquered, it says, he, he conquered 46 walled cities and countless villages and towns. Now, I'm not sure where Bethlehem would fit into this, except we have reference in the days of Rehoboam, you know, the son of Solomon. He turned Bethlehem into a walled city, which what you did is you would, if, if here's the capital, you would set up fortress cities. So if an enemy came from the south, so Bethlehem was definitely on the route. And I suspect was conquered by Sennacherib. He said, I besieged and took these 46 walled cities, he doesn't name all of them, and countless villages, 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, etc., and I brought them as, and counted as spoil. Now listen to this. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. Now we might look at that and say, oh, Sennacherib showed him. Sennacherib showed him. But notice, this is, this is kind of fake news. This is... This is we hear about news, news today and think, oh, these, these news people, the way they put a spin on things. Well, that's nothing new. 700 years before Christ, he puts a spin. I caged him up like a bird. Do you know what he's saying? I couldn't get him out of the cage. I couldn't conquer Jerusalem. Well, but I, 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 I surrounded him in there. 
but you didn't conquer it. And he doesn't mention 185,000 of his soldiers that died when an angel came through the camps at night. Even then, they, they, they had a, a knack for putting a spin on the news. But so, so here's this account. Notice what it says. He, he did not conquer Jerusalem. But on the route, and you can track the, you know, the, you know, where we know from history and what he reports, where he went, Bethlehem was right on the route to Jerusalem. And so here's my point. When Micah said, hey, don't look to Jerusalem, look to Bethlehem, in Micah's day, I'm sure a lot of people said, are you kidding me? He squashed Bethlehem like a bug. I remember in the dorms, one of our foreign students was pretty lethal at the ping pong table. I used to watch, uh, I, I never even thought to try against him, but I, he used, I watched, watched, used to watch him going down the hallway and down the stairs towards the ping pong room with maybe one of the other students following behind him. And I would typically hear his little phrases. He would tell them, I'm going to shake you like a rat. Well, that's what Sennacherib did to the cities of Judah. Bethlehem, he doesn't name Bethlehem because it's, it's not even significant enough to name it. But I'm going to guess he shook, shook them like a rat. And you know what? Micah, the prophet of God, says, your hope is in Bethlehem. Well, Jerusalem didn't fall, but Bethlehem did. Bethlehem? Bethlehem? They're going to protect us? What hope could come from such a small, insignificant little city? You know, when, if you go back to the book of Joshua, when they portioned out the regions of Israel, Bethlehem's not even on the list. It, it doesn't, it's, it's so insignificant, you don't even mention it. But out of that small, so how could that small and insignificant place be hope? It's not because of where it is. It's because of who came from there. So back to verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Out of little Bethlehem will come forth a ruler. Now, notice he doesn't say, um, I'm going to send a ruler to you. Out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler. The Lord Jesus Christ came, not for our agenda, but his Father's agenda. Ultimately, he came to serve the Lord. Yes, he came to save us, but he came for the Lord. Uh, he came to serve the Lord. He, he's coming to, to me. And, and Micah tells us he will bring peace. If we go over back to uh, chapter 4, I won't read all of it, but just verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Does that sound familiar? Now, I'll bet you, if you kind of know your Bible, and if I mentioned that, beat your, your 
uh, swords into plowshares, you'd be thinking, isn't that Isaiah? And you'd be right. Again, both of them have it. And so we wonder, so who's borrowing from whom? You know, um, you know, I can just imagine them there in a coffee shop in the outskirts of uh, Jerusalem. And, you know, the Lord showed me. He, we're gonna, they're going to beat swords into plowshares. And the other one's saying, oh, he told me the same thing. I don't know how this works, but, but it's in both of their prophecies. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Ain't going to study war no more. Micah tells us that this ruler will bring great peace. But how could someone from, from Bethlehem bring such peace? Well, Micah tells us his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's not your typical king. He is, listen to that again, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. I'll again put, read the whole context, the whole verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting, from the days of eternity. That's strong language to speak of the fact that this one, he's going to come out of Jerusalem, but that's not where he got his start. Now, if you're thinking really carefully, you'll think that's right. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit back in Nazareth, but that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is his beginnings aren't. He's the eternal one. He's been active. And, and he is from eternity. He is God. That's how someone coming out of Bethlehem can bring peace in this dark world because of who he is, not where he came from. That language is the strongest possible language. Uh, one Hebrew scholar wrote it this, said this, the phrases of this text are the strongest possible statement of infinite duration in the Hebrew language. And you can compare it to Psalm 90, verse 2, and Proverbs 8, 22, and 23. The preexistence of the Messiah is being taught here, as well as his active participation in ancient times and the purposes of God. That was uh, Feinberg who wrote that. The strongest possible way in the Hebrew language to say he's eternal, and that only describes God. Do you remember when they came to John the Baptist and said, well, who are you? And, and tell us about this. And, and, and here's what we're told in chap, John chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness of him, Christ, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's important. John the Baptist says Jesus was before him. Well, we might say, oh, well, then Jesus is older, not in his humanity. You remember the story, John the Baptist, uh, his mother was uh, six months along when Mary started her pregnancy with the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is older. 
conceived before, born before. But he says Jesus was before him because there he's speaking of his deity. He's eternal. In his humanity, he began in Nazareth. In his deity, he is God. God has no beginning. He's the eternal one. Remember John chapter 1, verse 1 starts that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 goes on to say, and the, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he is the eternal one who's, who had a beginning in humanity but whose divine nature as God was eternal. That's, he's no, so coming out of little Bethlehem, it's not Bethlehem that's making him great. It's him making Bethlehem great. By the way, I think about that. We think a little town of Bethlehem. If you go there, you will see a lot of activity. You can go to some stores where there's uh, handcrafts going on, using olive wood to make scenes. A lot, a lot of those scenes, nativities. Why is it, what is the major business in Bethlehem? Tourism, Why? Because that's where Jesus was born. <laughs> you take Jesus out of Bethlehem, and there's no reason to go there. It is, it is nothing. But that's where the ruler will bring a peace that will put, they'll turn their weapons into tools. Micah tells us more about him in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. He is peace. He will, he will put war to an end. He will rule in justice. He will rule in peace. And again, we think of what we read in Isaiah 9 this morning. He's the prince of peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will rule in righteousness. How? Because of who he is. So to me, one of the major lessons uh, that comes out of this is, uh, when we think of little Bethlehem, it's insignificant. It, is, it was a nothing time. It didn't even get included in the lists. It's insignificant. But it isn't any longer, is it? God can use the insignificant for his glory. In fact, have you ever noticed that God seems to prefer using the insignificant, the little, the weak? That way he gets the glory. <laughs> if Hezekiah won because he had a bigger wall, a deeper tunnel, Wow, Hezekiah, what a great engineer. But how did Hezekiah win? The Lord did it. God wants to use us in our weakness, in our littleness, in our inadequacy. When we can say, I can't do it. We're like a Paul who could say, when I'm weak, then I am strong, because it's the Lord's strength. So I think that's the whole point, when he kind of, in a sense, may I say, pushed. Now, he's going to come back, and I always like to think about the fact when I, you know, I'd love to go and, and see Jerusalem, because it's the, it's the future capital of the world. But what he's saying here is he kind of sets them aside, and it's not Jerusalem that's going to give us the king. Ah, oh, Jerusalem's going to crucify the king. 
No, but I will, I will, I will send my, I will send my king to Bethlehem. God uses us in our weakness, in our littleness, so that He gets the glory. If we can explain our accomplishments by my wisdom, our wisdom, and our strength, then God doesn't fit into the formula. But if if you look at us and say, how could he use him or her? Then God gets the glory. Bethlehem? <laughs> no. They get the, you wouldn't look to Bethlehem as a hope unless God said it. Now it's fascinating again to me, this prophecy was given during the days of Micah and Isaiah. 700 years before Christ, it's written down, here is where the Messiah would be born. And, and, and it even goes so far as to say, Bethlehem Ephrata. There actually was another Bethlehem up in the region of Zebulun by Gal- Sea of Galilee area, the Galilean region. But So this was a very specific prophecy, so there'd be no question which Bethlehem. It's kind of like when someone tells me, uh, I'm, you know, we're, it's a, our special anniversary, I'm taking my wife, we're going for a week to Paris. Okay, my question instantly is, are you talking about Paris, France or Paris, Texas? Yeah, I don't think they're going to Paris, Texas. Well, they might, some of my friends. But, um, but the point is, there's two of them. And this one is the, I want to make it clear, I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about the one in Texas. I'm not talking about the, the city that was on the list up in the north. I mean Bethlehem Ephrathah. You've heard about the king that went to the, the, uh, the prophetess, the, the oracle, and said, uh, I want to know if I should go to war with this other king. Should I attack this other king? And the prophetess announced to him, if you attack that king, you will destroy a great empire. And he thought, that's it. If I go, I win. And so he attacked and he was destroyed. Because you see, she was so vague, whose empire? (laughs) She didn't say. Either way, oh yeah, see, I was right. Well, here it's very clear. Which Bethlehem? Yeah, the insignificant one. The little one that no one thinks about. It's, it was specific, and it was 700 years old, and it's in writing. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, and, the, and the, the wise men come to Herod, and he asks his prophets, where is Messiah born? His Bible scholars agree instantly. Bethlehem. And they quote Micah chapter 5. So when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, that's a clear marker. He's Messiah. If another Messiah comes along and claims I'm the Messiah, where were you born? Bethlehem. Which one? The one five, six miles south of Jerusalem? If not, you're not the Messiah. When I think about this time, those were dark and fearful times. An evil force was rising in the world taking control of the lands, the Assyrians were, were notoriously brutal in the ancient world. They worked by terror. They were actually, in many ways, you can call them terrorists in their methods. They so terrorized. When they conquered a town, they so terrorized it, and then they came against the next town, they surrendered instantly because they saw what happened to the last one for, when they didn't surrender. They're dark times and fearful times. But what Micah is showing us is that God is sovereign. And he had a plan that could not be thwarted. 
they, the leadership of the land was at stake. Would, would the capital stand? Would the king stand? We saw what happened in the north, destroyed by the Assyrians. Would they now destroy us? Would our, would our system go away? In that fearful time, Micah is saying, keep an eye on the Lord. You're in hard times, and hard times are coming. But there are promises that have been made. The king is coming. The king. The eternal one. And he will bring peace. We live in kind of unstable times right now. Parts of the world, there are border skirmishes that could easily erupt. But in the last week, uh, an event happened in Iran. The, the, the lead nuclear scientist was uh, apparently assassinated. That could easily trigger a war sometimes. You look at the United States right now. We don't do this business of appointing kings. We have a much simpler process. We call them elections. We vote, then we know who the president's going to be. How's it working for us? <laughs> That's not a laughing matter, I suppose, but, but that, you know, these are dark and unstable times. Our hope is not in a political process. Our hope is in the Lord, who will not be defeated. And who's assured us the king is coming. This town of Bethlehem has such a history of being light and darkness. When the anarchy of the period of judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Horrible words. They did what was right in their own eyes. That so much characterizes the, the, the day in which we live. You do what's right in your own eyes. That's anarchy. That's moral and spiritual and even political anarchy. It's a dark time. But here was this little individual in a little village. A woman named Naomi. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, in Bethlehem. Women. Widows. I mean, they're at the bottom of the childless widows. They're at the bottom of the, of the rung. Boaz, a man of faith and godliness. Individuals in a little that we would never know about in history. But God used these little individuals in this little town for his great glory. <laughs> that was an oasis of light and darkness. Later on, when a self-focused king named Saul just constantly got things wrong <laughs> in terms of leading for God, God went to where to raise up a new king? Bethlehem. And not only did he go to little Bethlehem, Remember, he, he, went, he went to Jesse and said, uh, Samuel said, one of your sons is going to be king. He brought in all his sons. They all came before Samuel and said, no, none of these men is going to be king. But God told me one of your sons. You don't have any other sons, do you? I love that. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I forgot one. David was so insignificant. He was the shepherd out on the hill. He had someone go get David. I forgot. Sure enough, there's the king. An insignificant lad. In an insignificant family, in an insignificant village, but God could use him for his great purposes to show his light. When God, when in the days of Jesus, people looked for hope to, to Rome, something famous, Pax Romana, Rome brought peace. Or they looked to Jerusalem, that's where religion comes from. But where did Jesus come from? Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, that's strike two. And so here's the point. 
God wants to use us. We might say, but I'm weak. I'm, I'm, from, a, I'm from a small place. I'm a small person. I'm nothing. And God says to that, perfect. Because then they won't look at you. They'll look at me. And I'll get the glory. God wants to use us as light in darkness through our weakness. Because then he can show it's his strength through our frailties, through our failings. God wants to use us for his glory. And, and, and again, the greatest message of all in that is what is the symbol of Christianity? A cross. You don't get more shameful than that. And yet God chose to show us his love and mercy and grace in a cross. He sent his son to become, God became a man, conceived in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, killed in Jerusalem. He died for our sin that we might have life eternal when we trust in him as Savior. God took upon himself weakness to show his glory. He wants us to be vessels of his glory, but the greatest way we can do that, the most central part is when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear the message of Christmas. A Savior has been born in the most insignificant place in an insignificant country, in an insignificant and dark time of history, God sent a Savior to die for your sin, rise from the dead, and offer you eternal life. God's offering hope and calls you to trust in the Savior. Our Father, how I do pray. For those who have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may they see your glory in him. And may they know that only in him is their hope. Father, for those of us who are well aware of all that we cannot do and all that we are not, thank you, Father, that you can use and work through us so that your glory is even more clear. Lord, make us, I pray, lights in darkness for your glory. And this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.